Lord, we come before your throne this morning to ask for grace to help in time of need. We need you this morning, Lord, because we need that grace that you offer. We need the grace to calm our hearts, to shut out the cares of the world so that we could focus on you and your word. We need your grace, Lord, to give us wisdom. We know that if we lack wisdom, we have only to ask and that you give liberally. We need that wisdom, Lord, to understand your word and to apply it to our lives. I need your grace, Lord, to speak. I need you to use my thoughts and my words to bring about the end that we all desire, which is your glory. So that everything that is said and done here would just point to you. So that everyone's eyes would be lifted to you. That is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as usual, it's become a, almost a custom now that Lily reads whenever I preach. She's done it twice in a row now, so that's a custom, I suppose. Uh, it's always good to have our baby girl in town. Yes, she's still a baby. Uh, you all know this if you have children. She's the youngest. That makes her the baby, right? I was once introduced at a family reunion in my 40s as uh, Freddie's baby. My mom's name was Freddie, but I was Freddie's baby in my 40s. So, Lily, there you are. <laughs> what are you afraid of? What makes you fear? Now, I, I don't mean trivial things, like somebody coming up behind you and popping a balloon. Even babies have that startle reflex. No, no, I mean the thing that will wake you up from a deep sleep to a cold sweat. I mean something that really scares you. Most of you know that I grew up in, in the Deep South where everything bites or stings, but I'm not really afraid of bugs and spiders and snakes. I get used to them. Okay, hornets. I'm afraid of hornets, but any reasonable person would be afraid of hornets. I grew up climbing trees and working on housetops, so I'm not really afraid of heights. Not long ago, I got in a perfectly good airplane, got up to 10,000 feet and jumped out, strapped to another guy who had a parachute. So I'm not really afraid of heights. But there is something I am afraid of. I don't like tight, enclosed places. The psychologist would call that claustrophobia, and I've got a pretty good dose of it. Not terribly bad, but enough. The only nightmare I can remember, and the only time I've ever been awakened from deep sleep to utter panic, was a dream about being buried alive. If I were ever caught as a spy, the enemy wouldn't even have to break my skin to get every secret I ever knew. All they'd have to do is make a coffin, open at the foot end of the coffin, and stick me in it, tilt it up, and then slowly start to fill it up with water or dirt or whatever you like. I would tell them everything I ever knew, I would do or say anything they wanted me to. 
That's the kind of fear I'm talking about. Now, God made us emotional creatures. These emotions serve a purpose. Fear is no exception to that rule. Animals uh, have instinctual fears. It's been shown that baby monkeys are afraid of things that look like snakes even before they've ever seen a snake in real life. People have this sort of fight or flight reflex, which has gotten several people out of some pretty tight spots. Fear has its purpose. So the Bible's many admonitions to fear not or do not be afraid, they're not so much admonitions not to fear as they are admonitions not to allow that fear to cause you to produce harm or sin. I think Psalm 56 is mostly about how to deal with fear in the right way, in the way that acknowledges God's character, takes God's character into account, and honors him with the response to that fear. First, however, we need to look at a little background. Sorry, you've got an old professor up here, so we have to go back. The superscription at the beginning of the psalm tells us that this is a psalm of David. Okay, no surprise there. But it also mentions a specific event in David's life. So just for fun, let's go back and look at David's story in, in brief. This is the sort of Cliff Notes version of David's story. If you remember, back in 1 Samuel, the people, the Israelites, started saying, we need a king, we need a king. They didn't like these judges. So they finally asked Samuel to give us a king. Samuel went to God and God says, okay, tell them what they're getting into, but go ahead and give them a king. Okay, they did. That's how Saul came about. Head and shoulders above everybody else and looked like a king. But of course, we know that Saul didn't do real well, made lots of mistakes, sinned against God, and God's spirit left him. The kingdom was taken from him, but not right away. In 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed king while still a pretty young fellow. And he enters Saul's service as more or less a musician. He comes there to kind of keep Saul calm when the bad spirit is on him. Then in 1 Samuel 17, the next chapter, this is the story we all know. This is David and Goliath, right? Where this young fellow slays the giant, the enemy. Then in 1 Samuel 18, by now David is sort of taking up some of his military role. And obviously after having killed the giant, he's pretty famous. So Saul hears the women singing something like, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. And Saul gets jealous of David. He even throws his spear at him a couple of times in that chapter. In the next chapter, 1 Samuel 19, Saul tries to have David killed, but God protects him miraculously. Then a couple of chapters later in 1 Samuel 21, David came to Ahimelech, who was a priest of the Israelites in a town called Nob, and he lies. He comes to him and says, Saul sent me on a secret mission. I didn't have time to get any supplies or even my sword. So you got any food? Could you give me some food? Oh, and by the way, if you got a sword, that'd be good too. So Ahimelech 
believes David's lie and says, oh, yeah, we've got some of the food of the bread of the presence. We can give you that as long as you guys haven't uh, done anything unclean. And, uh, oh, by the way, Goliath's sword is here. You can have that one. So that's what David takes. Then in that same chapter, David goes to a city of the Philistines called Gath. Now, you can sort of imagine that this is a little bit strange. The Philistines are at war with the Israelites right now. They know who he is. They've heard the same songs. And they know, they, they take him before the king, Achish. David knows he's in trouble, and he gets out of it by pretending to be insane. And Achish says, I don't need another madman. Get this guy out of here. And David is allowed to escape. In the chapters that follow, Saul continues to chase David all over the country. David spares Saul's life twice. And he even returns to Achish and is given the city of Ziklag as a sort of a, a home base. And now David lies some more. Ziklag say, or, or Achish says, you know, maybe I can turn this guy to my benefit. I'll let him have this city, and if he'll just attack the Israelites once in a while, they won't trust him anymore, so they'll never take him back, and he can be my servant. So David pretends to go and attack the Israelites, but in reality, he's attacking the Israelite enemies. Hmm. Do you see how David's response to fear has changed? He starts out a young fellow who fights the lion and the bear and the giant. No problem. He trusts God and does exactly, he, he, I'm sure he's afraid. Nobody could be not afraid facing the giant Goliath, but he overcomes that fear with faith in God and does what needs to be done. But now suddenly he's afraid again for his own life, of course, and he lies again and again and again. That doesn't sound like the author of Psalm 56. Actually, I think, even though the scriptures don't say, I think this psalm was written a little later. I think David has had some time to reflect. And I think Psalm 56 was written by David, who looked back on these events and is now describing what God taught him about fear. So let's dig in. First, in your Bible, you may see the superscription. The first thing it says is, to the choir master. Well, it's a, the psalms are songs, after all. They're meant to be sung or chanted or used as sort of responsive readings, so it makes sense. But I think this tells me that David wanted this particular psalm especially to be sung. There's something about a good song that just sticks with you. So we shouldn't be surprised if some of the words sound a little bit odd and maybe out of place, because when you're writing a song, you have to make sure you keep it in the right rhythm. You have to make sure it rhymes when it's supposed to rhyme, that sort of thing. Sometimes you choose different words just to make it work in the song. Of course, that's in the Hebrew. We're doing it in English, so it's going to sound even stranger sometimes. But that's okay. We think it might have been a song. Next, your translation may have a, a group of three Hebrew words. Maybe they're joined by hyphens. I'm not going to try to pronounce them because my Hebrew is not that good. The first of these means dove, which 
most scholars think is a, in an Israelite literature, it had the, the feeling of innocence, sometimes innocent suffering. Then the next one means, uh, lost my place. There it is. The next one means silent or mute. And then the third one means remote or far off. So you may have a phrase in there that says something about a far off dove or a, a dove in a remote place, and it maybe names the place. But some scholars think that this is just a way to give a, an overview of this psalm by giving a, a word picture. Think of someone who is an innocent, who suffers in silence by this suffering and persecution and is driven far from home. That sounds exactly like what David is in the middle of right now. I didn't do anything, he said. I'm innocent of all this. And yet, I don't really have a way to get out of it. And I'm being driven from my home. Sort of makes sense. Finally, the last line in the superscription tells us that this psalm is a miktam of David. Now, your guess is as good as mine and anybody else's what that might mean. It might mean golden. Some scholars think it might mean that, which exactly what that means. Who knows? But we might think of it as favorite or, okay, in our uh, modern vernacular, greatest hits. Maybe this is one of David's greatest hits. Maybe that's what that means. Maybe it just has to do with the poetical form, the lyrical form, what form it took in the liturgy. We don't know. However, the end of that last line gives us the specific context because your Bible will probably say, and I think in the ESV it says, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now, if you read in 1 Samuel, it says nothing about David being seized in Gath. But it's easy to fill in because think about it. Here's the guy who's going to be the future king of Israel. They've heard about him. They've heard the same songs that Saul did. He shows up in the enemy's town. And the soldiers say, wait, isn't that their new king? <laughs> We'd better take him before the king. So, of course, he gets seized and taken before the king. And this is when David pretends to be insane and gets away. So it seems that this psalm was written in response to that uh, episode in David's life. Now, I know this psalm has 13 verses in our English translation, but it's really a song, right? And if you look at the structure, it looks like it has four verses, four musical verses. Let's look at them one at a time. Verse one, which in our Bible is verses one through four. David opens up this first musical verse with a plea. Be gracious to me, O God. Some translations may say, be merciful to me, O God. Note two things. First, this is a plea. This is a, a crying out to God. This shows David's complete dependence on his heavenly father. This is a child crying out to a parent for help because that's where help comes from. That's exactly where a child expects help to come from. Nothing warms the heart of a parent more than a little toddler with both arms stretched up high, wanting mom or dad to come and rescue them. You think God feels exactly the same way when his children reach up to him first? 
I think that, just like it makes a parent feel like the most important being in that child's universe, when we do that to God, I think that makes God feel like what he is, the most important being in that child's universe. Second Chronicles 16.9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Why? To give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. God wants his children to cry out to him. He's looking for that chance. Second in this plea, we notice that there's no mention of David's merit or God's obligation. David doesn't say, now, God, you know all the things I've done for you lately. I've been a really good boy. And by the way, you owe me for this one. There's none of that. This is just a cry. This is just a plea for help. So think about that with parents and children. If your child is hurt and crying out to you for rescue, you don't stop and say, well, you know, you didn't pick up your toys this morning. No, you're going to go and grab that kid and get him out of harm's way. That's what parents do. Why does David need this gracious help from God? Well, read the next part of verse 1. For man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. David has about reached the end of his rope. Saul is chasing him, so he can't trust anybody in Israel. He's surrounded by enemies all over. you got the Ammonites and the Edomites and the Philistines. He can't go anywhere else and expect any help. Imagine waking up every new day and wondering, okay, which one of my enemies am I going to have to fight or run from today? That's where David was. So it makes sense that he's crying out. The last word in verse 2 in the ESV is is translated proudly. But in some translations, if you have the King James, for instance, you might see, O thou most high, or O most high. The grammatical details of the language tends to favor the, the ESV version to make that not a noun but an adverb, proudly. And you have to worry about what that means. What does it mean to, uh, in the words there, attack me proudly? Well, you could think of it in two ways. Since proudly comes from a word that means high, maybe they're attacking David from the high ground. David's a military man. He would know that's a bad thing, right? If your enemy is attacking you from the high ground, you're not in very good shape. But it could also mean, as it's translated in the ESV, they're attacking me proudly. They're looking down their nose at me. They're not afraid of me and my little band of five or 600 people. And I'm sort of in trouble because of it. Now we know why David cried out to God. But look what he learned. What he learned about this situation comes in the very next verse. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. Again, a few important things to note just in these little few verses. Notice David says when, not if. When I'm afraid, not if I'm afraid. Being afraid is assumed. The world is a tough place. 
God made you an emotional creature. You will be afraid. But David says, I've now learned when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. Note, too, that the proper response to that fear is trust in God. When I am afraid, what do I do? I trust in you. Third, you have to see that the foundation of that trust is God's word. Now, of course, to the Israelites at this time, they they don't have our whole Bible at this point. They've got some of the Holy Scriptures and the rest of it they hear. And probably some of them might not even be able to read it. They're hearing it in, in the temple, in the synagogue. So the word of God is their way of knowing what God is like, what God has done. And it's rehearsed for them over and over, right? Didn't Deuteronomy say you're supposed to think about these things when you lie down, when you rise up, when you walk by the way? That's their life. So the foundation of that trust, what they know about God, comes from the Word of God. Then last, look at the very first bit of that and the very last bit of that. The first bit of verse 3 says, when I am afraid. And the last bit of verse 4 says, I shall not be afraid. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) I don't know much about logic, but that sounds like a contradiction to me. When I am afraid, I shall not be afraid. Kind of a contradiction in terms. I think David here is reminding us that there are two viewpoints here. There's fear and your response to that fear. David says, when I'm afraid, I'm not going to act like I'm afraid. I'm not going to respond to that fear in the usual way. Why? Because I put my trust in God. Now we come to the real crux of the argument. The last part of verse 4 asks a rhetorical question, what can flesh do to me? Okay, you all know what a rhetorical question is. It's one of those literary devices that people use to make a point. Supposedly, when you ask a rhetorical question, you don't have to answer the question because your audience will answer the question for you. That just sort of reinforces the point. For instance, uh, say you've got a nine-year-old at home, and they invite a whole bunch of other nine-year-olds over for a birthday party. And you send them down to the basement unsupervised. Your spouse looks at you and asks the rhetorical question, what could possibly go wrong? You get it, right? You see what the point of a rhetorical question is. I don't have to answer that question. Every parent in this audience answered that question, probably with three or four scenarios. Everything from bruised knees to cuts and scrapes to they use the hot water heater to blow the house up, right? You know all the things that could go wrong. I don't have to say it. Well, if this is a truly rhetorical question, then the answer is supposed to be obvious. Okay, what can flesh do to me? Uh, Well, (laughs) now I have to start putting a little asterisk by it and say, it depends. It depends on your viewpoint. Yes, the answer is obvious, but I can come up with two obvious answers that are different. If I take the human perspective, what can flesh do to me? The answer is quite a lot. If the the other guy's bigger and meaner than I am, he could do me physical harm. If he's got more money than I have, then he could use hire lawyers and take me to court and, and get me in all sorts of trouble. 
If he has more political power than I do, then he's going to use his political machine to ruin my reputation. All kinds of things can be done to me by the arm of flesh. But now I've been in Sunday school long enough to know that that's not the answer that I'm supposed to give to that question. So that must mean that there's another viewpoint that does give me the right, obvious answer. What could it be? Of course, David knew this as well, right? David was a soldier. He knew exactly what soldiers could do to each other. So David must have used this same dichotomy as well, this two opposite viewpoints, and pick the right one. So if I'm not supposed to take the human standpoint, the human perspective, the secular perspective, I better choose another one. Well, okay, you've been around the Bible long enough to know the Bible never tells us to adopt that human perspective. You know the verses here as well as I do. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Romans 8.5, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 has a longer passage about this. We'll just read a couple of verses. Verse 12 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. A couple of verses later in verse 14 it says, The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay. So obviously, the human perspective doesn't give me the right answer. Let me use this more spiritual perspective. So let's head back to the scriptures and see what that looks like. Matthew 10, chapter 29, tells us whom and what to fear. It's a familiar verse. You probably know it. Jesus says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather... Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Okay. From the lips of Jesus himself, here's the final word from both perspectives, right? The ultimate terrible outcome in the secular perspective is death of the body. But Jesus says that pales in comparison to the death of the soul. And since only one person in the whole universe can destroy the soul, he's the one worthy of fear. Okay, now I'm a little bit afraid. <laughs> How on earth can anyone escape this, this inescapable, invincible fear? Pastor Trevor actually almost stole my thunder. He read... Chapter 8, verse 31 of Romans. So if you go to Romans chapter 8, let's start at verse 31 and read a little bit more. Romans 8, 31 says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Okay, now my fear is going away a little bit. If the righteous judge is on our side, we have nothing to fear. Let me say that again. If God, the righteous judge, is on our side, we have nothing to fear. He's the one who justifies or condemns. So if he's on our side, no one can come into his court and make any charge stick against us. This judge is on our side. He won't listen. The only possible, conceivable accuser we could have is the one who suffered in our place. You could imagine Jesus saying, well, okay, I took your place this time, but you're going to have to take some of this now. I'm going to give it back to you. He's the only one who would even have the smallest moral chance of putting that punishment back on us, the one who actually took it. But look what Romans says. His sacrifice was accepted by the righteous judge. And the evidence of that was that he was raised on the third day. He's not taking that sacrifice back. More than that, this is the one who now stands in God's courtroom and intercedes for us. There's no way this is coming back on us. And so the other leg of this dichotomy, the human versus spiritual perspective, the spiritual perspective is the one that gives us the right frame of mind to look at this psalm about fear. So let's read the rest of the musical verses. Verse 2 begins in uh, verse 5 of our scripture. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. So now David returns to this description of his enemies. They're single-minded in their attacks. They're sneaky and devious, and they watch every move. Verse 7 is a little tougher to interpret, uh, but there are two general views. It's either a simple plea that God would not let his David's attackers escape the punishment for their crimes, or David is saying that they're trying to use their crime to get out of their crime. <laughs> sort of like a, a mafia boss who has a witness murdered so that the, the witness can't testify at the trial. Whichever interpretation you take, David's plea is the same. He wants God to exact judgment on his attackers. Do David's enemies sound at all like ours? Unrelenting, scheming, underhanded, skulking, slippery. These are the people who can make life miserable and who never seem to get what they deserve. And yet David has learned, and he teaches us, to leave their fate to God rather than to lash out in our fear. 
this eternal perspective, trust God so much that it causes us to leave even our worst fears, the things that frighten us most, in his wise and capable hands. Verse 3 starts in verse 8. So this is the third musical verse. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? David gives another reason for his trust in God to deal with these enemies. God has seen it all. He wrote it down in books. He knows that God keeps a record. Matthew chapter 10 tells us that not one sparrow falls without God's knowledge. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that in the final judgment, there will be books opened. And in those books will be recorded all the deeds of every person who ever lived. Nothing is forgotten by this God. Nothing is overlooked. But his realization that God is for me is the real foundation on which he stands. In my opinion, there's no greater assurance in all of Scripture than this one little immeasurable fact. God is for us. The creator and sustainer of the universe is on our side and for our good. If there ever was an antidote to crushing fear, it's this. David then closes this verse of the song with that same refrain from earlier. But this time it sounds more like a shout of faith. What can man do to me? This is not a rhetorical question. This is a shout of faith. Then verse 4, which is in our verse 12 and 13. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. So now David's heart for God overflows in thanksgiving. He here mentions a thank offering. If you go back into Leviticus, you can read about the thank offerings, which is one of the peace offerings. There were a couple of kinds, but this is one of the offerings that could be offered at any time. A spontaneous offering could be offered by anyone in the house of Israel before God just to thank God for something. This was a, a formal sort of public way for David to express his thanks for God's deliverance. Then he also nails down the aim of that deliverance, the ultimate reason why thanksgiving for such deliverance is so precious. Did you hear it? Because it allows God, I'm sorry, because it allows David and us to walk before God in the light of life. Not grovel, walk. We're before the king, no less. That says something about the favor that's been extended to David by that king. And to describe that favored place as the light of life, wow, that tells me that David really was a man after God's own heart. There's no better place in David's estimation than to walk before God in the light of life. Oh, brothers and sisters, lay down your ambition. 
and your senseless human striving. Make it your greatest goal to walk before God in the light of life. So what have we learned from Psalm 56? One, fear is an inevitable part of life. So what do you fear? Imminent death? A debilitating illness? A financial cliff? A ruined reputation? A family in tatters? What do you do with that fear? This psalm tells us you cry out to God. Trust in the one who is for you and knows your troubles. Dive into his word. Understand that trust and its power. We know that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Put that fear in its place. Behind the Father who shields you from that ultimate harm. Then finally, thank your protector and sustainer for allowing you to walk before him in the light of life. Jim Cruiser and I often get together and play music. We've been doing this for 20 years now. He's like my brother from another mother. It's amazing that we were separated for all these years, and yet we have so much in common. We would occasionally go and play music for uh, people, uh, shut-ins or people in nursing homes and things like that. Some of you may remember an elderly fellow named Don. He was one of our, uh, in the, the Sunbeamers class, a special class uh, for folks who had uh, some learning disabilities. Well, Don was in hospice care. Was, uh, cancer was about to end his life. And Jim said, let's go play some music for Don. He loves music. Okay. We got our instruments and we go to play music for Don. We played a few. And then Jim asked Don if he had any song he wanted to sing, if he had a request. You know what he requested? This is a man with a simple mind who probably didn't understand everything. In his last days on this earth, dying from cancer, you know what he asked to sing? When I am afraid, I will trust in you. I will trust in you. I will trust in you. Lord, give us that kind of trust. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you so carefully preserved for us. We thank you that in it, we see your hand at work, and it gives us good reason to trust you. In it, we see how you are for us, and that nothing escapes your notice. Help us, Lord, then to apply that to anything in this life that makes us afraid, to anything we fear in this life. Let us hand that fear to you because we know that you have our ultimate end safely in hand and man can't do anything to us. And even, Lord, if we suffer, and we know we will in this life, we take solace in the words of Paul who told us that these light afflictions, these momentary problems are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will one day be revealed in us when we finally get 
to the reward that you have prepared for us. Help us, Lord, to focus on that, to lean on you, to go from grace to grace every day. In Jesus' name, amen.